Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor of Covenant Hope Church. I'm really glad that you're listening in to our summer 2020 sermon series through the Psalms. One of the most popular Broadway musicals in recent history has just made it into movie or film form, and I had the privilege of seeing it recently. It's called Hamilton. Now, you have to forgive me. The story of the musical Hamilton is about the founding of the United States of America. I'm from the United States. And Hamilton is the name of one of the founders of the democracy that is the United States of America. In this musical, there's incredible dancing, incredible music, incredible characters and actors. And one of the actors that plays a bit part, a very small part, is the King of England, King George, who was the King of England when the United States was founded, when they broke away from Britain. King George in the musical is kind of a comical figure, actually. He just sings two songs. They're kind of funny, silly songs with a bit of an edge to them. They're hilarious. They make the audience laugh. And then he exits and leaves all the seriousness and incredibly intense acting to all the other actors in the musical. Most people don't take kings very seriously these days, do they? There are about 44 countries in the world today who are ruled over by a monarch, either a king or a queen or maybe both. But really, of those 44 countries, there's only about 10, only about 10 out of 200 total countries in the world who have monarchs or kings who have absolute power. They absolutely rule. That's only about 5%. Kings are kind of out of fashion these days. Think of how many movies that you know of or how many stories that you've read where the king is depicted as a good guy, someone who blesses and takes care of the people, who doesn't look out for himself first, but looks out for his kingdom. There's not many, are there? Kings are not too popular these days. If I asked you what form of government you'd like to live under, probably very few of you would say, I'd like to live under a king. But if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible, what the Bible says about you and about the world and about God, you live under God who is a king. That's the subject that we're exploring today in Psalm 93. It's just five verses. Psalm 93 is what we're looking at that the Lord God is the sovereign king over everything and everyone. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm, Psalm 93. If you're not familiar with looking up the different books of the Bible or the sections of the Bible, uh, the Psalms are pretty much right in the middle, right in the middle if your Bible has the Old and New Testament. So if you've turned to Psalm 93, follow along with me as I read. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. 
Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. O Father in heaven, your name is honored as holy. Your kingdom is going to come and your will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven because you are king. All authority is yours. All power is yours. And this, Psalm 93, is your word which we have the privilege of reading and meditating on and hearing preached today. We know your word doesn't ever go out and accomplish nothing. Instead, it accomplishes exactly what you intend for it to accomplish. Lord, please make it effective today to open the eyes of our hearts to your glorious and gracious kingship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, my sermon this afternoon has three points to it. You can write these down. That might be a help for you to follow along as we make our way through these very few five verses in this psalm. The points are the king's majestic authority in verses 1 and 2, his majestic authority, his mighty power in verses 3 and 4, and finally, his trustworthy character in verse 5. The king's majestic authority, the king's mighty power, and the king's trustworthy character. Now, as we move through the Psalms, we began a few weeks ago with Psalm 90, and we're making our way just sequentially through the 90s in the Psalms. And Psalm 93, then, will begin a stretch of Psalms with the theme of God as King. And that's going to continue all the way to Psalm 100. Now, the Psalm doesn't have a title, and so we don't know who wrote it or any other details that a title would tell us. But in these first in these five verses, the theme of the psalm is crystal clear. This is the theme. The Lord God is king with authority, power, and trustworthy character. The Lord God is king with authority, power, and trustworthy character. And there in the first two verses, the psalmist boldly announces the king's majestic authority. That's the first point this afternoon, his majestic authority. Of course, in these just short five verses, it actually is still full of repetition and words that are similar or echo one another. And that gives us a vivid picture of God as king. Look with me again at verse one. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. The first sentence, the first phrase, it starts by saying, the Lord reigns. It means he rules. Or like the word that I've used in the title for these two verses, he has authority. But the authority is described in a specific way. It's described as majestic. Now we know that kings wear robes. They wear royal robes. And the Lord our king is no different. He has a robe and it is majesty itself. He wears a robe of majesty, and the robe is secured with a belt of strength. If you're going to go to a job interview, you want to dress 
to show the people who are interviewing you who you are, what you're like, what they can expect from you. Well, according to the psalmist, the Lord is dressed to rule with greatness. That's what majesty means. It means greatness. Of course, God doesn't wear clothes. In actuality, God is a spirit. But the psalmist is using the image of an earthly king to portray the Lord who is dressed as king over all of creation and his creatures. He has majesty as his robes. Majesty is greatness. It means even perhaps beautiful greatness. Most of us aren't familiar with seeing anything or even imagining anything that is majestic very often. We don't think about things that are truly great, awe-inspiring very often. You might think of something like some of the amazing buildings in Dubai, if I describe greatness to you, are awesome. But God's creations make all of our human creations look like child's toys. The Burj Khalifa can't compare to mountains in Switzerland or Nepal. Okay, the, the Burj is amazing. I, I think it's a, a beautiful building, of course, but the majesty of Mount Everest can take your breath away. And God's majesty is far, far greater than any mountain that he's made, and he made all of them. Any majesty that we might witness in creation derives its majesty from the unlimited and majestic and unmatched power of God. All of the majesty in creation comes from the majesty of God, and it points to him. There at the end of verse 1 and on into verse 2, we see the psalmist turn to creation as something fixed and stable. He calls it established. That word is used twice. The world is established. It shall never be moved, he says. Morning after morning, the sun rises. Evening after evening, the sun sets. It happens every single day. It happened every day before you were alive, before I was alive. It will happen every day after we're dead until the Lord comes back. What God created in the beginning has been fixed and immovable for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's established and it can't be moved except by the one who made it, God. But God's throne, which represents his majestic authority, is, has always been there. It was established from old. So the world was established by them. It can't be moved. But the psalmist goes on to tell us that what was established even before then and actually never has a beginning is the throne of God. The world had a beginning. It has an age. It has a birthday, essentially. We mark it off every January 1st. Genesis 1 is the record of how God made it. It started. But the Lord's majestic rule had no beginning. It has always existed, and it always will. Last week, I quoted J.I. Packer, a noted theologian from England. I was quoting him from a book that he wrote on living your life all the way to the very end, into old age, and right up to your death as a devoted follower of Christ. I woke up on Saturday morning and read the news that J.I. Packer had died the day before. He died on the day that I read that quote to you. 
And so you'll forgive me if I use another quote of his in his honor. He writes in his really most famous book, Knowing God, about what it costs us if we don't have a deep understanding of the majestic authority of God. He says, The Christian's instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by knowledge of the greatness of God. But this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack. And that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship is so flabby. We are modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. When the person in the church, let alone the person in the street, uses the word God, the thought is rarely of divine majesty. Have you thought about that as a possible source of your weakness of faith? Do you meditate and fill your mind with truths about the majestic greatness of God and His total and absolute rule over everything? Do you think on those things? J.I. Packer is arguing that that's one of the reasons why our faith is feeble and our worship is flabby is because we don't think of God as majestic and in all authority. You know, that's one of the reasons why, as a church, we want to choose very carefully the songs that we sing together. We want to choose them so that we sing songs about all the attributes of God. We want to sing songs about the grace and kindness of Christ. We want to sing songs about the mercy of God. We want to even sing songs about the judgment of God. And we want to sing songs about the majesty of God. Perhaps that makes you think about songs like Holy, Holy, Holy. It's a great song talking about the majestic authority of God and His character as holy. How else can we think about God's majestic authority? Well, first of all, we have to think less about ourselves. Have you ever considered that, that we oftentimes are so much thinking about ourselves, so much so that we begin to think that we are the center of the universe, but we're not. God, the King, is the center of the universe. And we have to turn our thoughts to the greatest things about Him in order to shrink our view of ourself and expand our view of Him. In Isaiah 40, the prophet asks, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Is it people, he thinks and asks? No, Isaiah says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Could it be the nations of the earth, as powerful as they are? No, says Isaiah. Behold, he says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust in the scales is the great leaders of the world. No, it is he who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, says Isaiah. Or could it be the universe itself, as vast and as unmeasured as it is? Not even that can rival the majesty of God. Lift up your eyes on high and see, he says, who created these? He who brings out the host by number, calling them by name, 
by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Meditating on the majestic authority of the Lord fills us with awe and wonder, and it bolsters our faith and our obedience in him. It prompts us to worship with our lives. Knowing more of the majestic authority of the Lord is it's like the gravitational pull of the sun on the planets in our solar system. The pull of the sun holds the planets firmly in their orbit, circling the sun, always in reference to the sun they're circling. And so a deep understanding of God's mad, majesty does the same for us. It keeps us living in reference to God, orbiting and ordering our lives around Him and nothing else. He is a majestic king, and he has all authority. Do you think of God's authority in your life as something that restricts you, or as something that's life-giving and only blessing? Which one? You know, in our day and age, speaking of authority people rebel against it. They want to be their own authority. I spoke with a non-Christian friend recently whose life is spinning out of control. And before I began to share the gospel with this person, I told them, you need a North Star in your life. You need a central loving authority. And in fact, I went on to tell them, I believe that that's how you were created. You were created to live under the authority of God, who is your king. I went on to explain the gospel. And I wonder if you're not a Christian, how you think about these questions I'm asking about authority. How do you respond to me telling you that there's a God who, even if you're not recognizing it, is your king, your rightful king? Do you find yourself pushing back against that idea? Do you find yourself thinking that it would be better if no one had authority over you, that you can do the best at running your life and making your own decisions? <laughs> oh, friend, think again. Think again. When Christians set their hearts and minds on the truth of God's majestic authority and rule, we find security. We find consolation we find stability and safety. When we don't know what tomorrow holds, we remember who holds tomorrow in his hands, the Lord who's king. Think of the security and calm that a child experiences when they can see that a strong and loving parent is in control in the midst of chaos. That's the kind of security and consolation that we have knowing that the Lord is our king and in control. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are parents, this is one of the most important things you can be teaching your children from a very young age, the idea that there is an authority over them. You, as a parent, have been put in authority over them. Don't neglect that responsibility to teach them that. Because when you teach them that there is authority over them in their lives, you're preparing them to understand that the Lord is their ultimate 
authority. You're preparing them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they would bow the knee to his authority. Well, when we recognize that the Lord is king, he has majestic authority over us, it gives us an incredible sense of peace and security. The Lord's authority is a reality, but it is empty if he doesn't have the power to enforce it. And what's hinted at in verse 1 with that belt of strength that the psalmist tells us is around the majestic robe of the Lord, we see described in full in verses 3 and 4. There we see the king's mighty power, his mighty power, verses 3 and 4. And specifically, we see his mighty power over chaos in the world. Look at those two verses with me again. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Once again, of course, there's repetition of many words, floods, are mentioned three times. They've lifted up three times. And then we read about the mighty power of the Lord, mightier, mightier, and then mighty in that third line of verse four. First of all, those floods are lifting up their voice. They're roaring as it puts in that third line of verse three, or as some translations put it, they're lifting up, they're pounding, actually. It's an image of untamable waters. And it might remind you of the world when it was covered in chaotic waters in Genesis chapter 1 in the very first few verses of the Bible. Or perhaps maybe you remember the floods that killed every single person on the earth except Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. There's lots of opinions actually among commentators about exactly what these floods are referring to whether or not they're referring to just the water that's on the earth and God's control over it, that would be significant. But I think many of the commentators are right when they say that it makes most sense that these waters, these floods, are representative of the chaos among the people and the leaders of the world who are in opposition to the Lord's majestic authority. For example, it it might remind us or be reminiscent of Psalm 2, which says this, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. It's that image of people and rulers and nations rising up in rebellion against God, who is the true king. And whether it's a metaphor simply for something powerful in creation, or whether it represents nations and peoples rising up against the Lord, who's king over all, verse 4 settles the issue. Neither would be a threat to the Lord, who is the almighty sovereign king. He's mightier than them all. He's more powerful than either of them or both of them combined. God not only has authority over everything and everyone, but he can oppose, impose his authority with his almighty power. You can be a king over a nation 
and have authority. It's written into the Constitution. The people acknowledge it. But if you don't have an army or you don't have a loyal police force or you don't have courts and judges, you can't impose your authority. Your authority is empty and your enemy can gather at your borders and you can protest that it's your country and you demand that they leave, but without power, you'll be overrun. Your rule and authority is useless without power. But God has both authority and the greatest power. Think of the great acts of God where he demonstrated his mighty power written throughout the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament scriptures. He fashioned the earth and the, he and the heavens from nothing. He, he flung planets into space. He hung stars in the sky. Creation is perhaps the greatest show of God's mighty power. Back in Isaiah 40, again, back in that chapter, the Lord asks, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Of course, the rhetorical question is answered, the Lord. The Lord has done that. Or th think of the great leaders who have held vast powers when they ruled on the earth. Alexander the Great or Attila the Hun or Napoleon or Hitler. They all ruled and they all died. But the Lord lives forever. Yet the God, the King of all creation, He's sitting on His throne full of power and might. He's greater than any of them. He's more powerful than them. Now remember, for the Psalms of Book 4, they're thought to speak to Israel during their captivity under foreign kings perhaps the Babylonians or when they were in exile in Persia. And those kings didn't recognize the Lord as God. They worshiped idols. So Israel had no earthly king of their own. Their kings had been imprisoned, had their eyes put out, driven away or killed. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be an Israelite and to sing this Psalm 93, living under the rule of a king who was hostile to your faith? No matter how bad it got for you, no matter how difficult life might have become, you would sing this psalm declaring that the Lord is mightier than the ruler that you're living under. The Jews would have been reminding themselves that they'd always had a king far greater than any mere man who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. The Lord their God was their forever king. Knowing that the king to whom we swear our allegiance is mightier than the mightiest powers in the universe should be a cause of great comfort for us, brothers and sisters. If you feel like the powers over you in the country where you live or in your job or perhaps even in your family, if you're the lone Christian there and some of your family members are hostile to your faith in the Lord. Remember that your true king, the true and ultimate authority over you, is more powerful still, more powerful than them. When we pray for countries and 
people around the world, as we often do sometimes in our Monday night Zoom meetings and when we were gathering together before COVID, we would oftentimes pray for unreached people groups or people in other countries, churches in other countries where they were being oppressed by authorities and powers that were over them. We, many of us don't speak the languages in those places. We don't know the culture there. We've never been there. We oftentimes only seen those places on the map. But we know that the king who we're praying to is more powerful than the powers in that country. We have the ear of the mighty one, and he listens to his people. Brothers and sisters, pray with confidence that your king hears your prayers for his church and his people, and he has the power to make anything happen. He's a king with mighty power. But what is a king who has majestic authority and mighty power if we, if we don't know his character? I mean, a king like that could be more dangerous than all the wicked leaders on the earth combined. But of course, verse 5 reassures us this king has trustworthy character. That's the third point this afternoon, trustworthy character. And we see that in that very last verse. It's just three short lines. Look at that last verse with me again. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Kings issue decrees, rulings, and this king is no different. He's spoken. He's made laws. He's communicated with his people. This king wants his thoughts and his desires to be known. And his decrees are trustworthy. He's not going to change his mind. And so we know with confidence that the king is someone to trust. What he says is true and what he says is right. When the Lord speaks, we can count on it being for our good. If it's a declaration that he makes about us, it's accurate. If the king makes promises, he'll keep them. It's not uncommon for the psalmists to first speak about creation and then to pivot to speaking about God's word or God's statutes, about scripture. They do that often. We see it in one of the most famous psalms that we oftentimes quote Psalm 19. And so Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the psalmist goes on to speak about creation. And then in verse 7, the psalmist says in 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And he goes on to speak about the Lord's decrees, his word. Thinking on God's established and unmovable creation naturally leads to thinking about his trustworthy word. In fact, it was his trustworthy word that created us and all that we can see around us. It's his word that's the reason why creation has been established. It's the source. And so here in verse 5, not only are we reminded that he's trustworthy and he desires to communicate with us as creatures, we learn as well that he's holy. And his holiness befits 
his house, as that second line reads. Now, that's a funny word, isn't it? Befits. You probably don't use it very much. I know I don't. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that's translated into the English word befit is used only in two other places in the Bible. And in both of those places, it means something like beautiful or lovely. And so one commentator translates this line, holiness is the beauty of your temple. Holiness is the beauty of your temple. There again, with the temple being referenced in our minds, it, it should turn to God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. That's what it should make us think about, his desire to reveal himself to us. That was the purpose of Israel's temple. It was there so that God could dwell and live amongst his people. And his temple was holy because he was holy. In other words, it's set apart and completely different for a specific purpose. That's what holy means. This God who is king is trustworthy, holy, desires to communicate with his people and to live in their midst. As much as this king of the universe should inspire awe and appropriate fear, this is a king we can have confidence in and trust. Do you trust God's word? Do you immerse yourself in it and believe what it says? Do you approach it? And before you even open it up, say, this is God's word. It is true, whatever I'm about to read. Is that your posture towards his word? I hope so. And do you base your life on it? Do you close your Bible and walk away saying, I'm going to aspire to live in light of God's word, his decree, because it's trustworthy? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, though, we know that we're so unlike God. We don't often keep our word. We're so oftentimes not trustworthy. And we look at our lives and we see sin. We see ourselves being drawn to the world rather than the holiness of God and to living holy lives being set apart for God's glory. How can we approach this kind of king and be safe? Well, the only one who's made that possible is the king himself. He knows better than we do how unready we are to meet him, how unprepared we are to approach his throne. We were once part of the flood of people in rebellion against his heavenly rule, in fact, that are described in verses 3 and 4 with those images of the waves pounding and lifting up their voices against him. We wanted to rule ourselves, and we did. In that state of rebellion against this king, we deserved his wrath and his punishment. He has the authority to punish. He has the power to punish. And he would have been right to punish us for our rebellion against him. But this king loves us deeply. And so he took off his royal majestic robes and he stepped off his throne and he took on flesh. This king is Jesus Christ. His disciples caught glimpses of the hidden majesty 
that he had as he walked among them. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle John says in John chapter 1, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Jesus came into this world humble and poor. His majesty and his glory was hidden from everyone except those who had the eyes of faith. And he lived in complete obedience to his Father. And when he went to the cross, he was taking on himself the wrath of the Father to pay for the rebellion that we had engaged in. He paid that penalty on our behalf. He took it on himself so that we might share in his holiness and in his righteousness. So that we might be able to draw near and worship him, worship our true king. And Jesus rose again to new life. And he took on the promise that his Father in heaven would glorify him with the majestic glory that he had before he was sent to us. Jesus and the Father share the same character and the same essence. This psalm is describing Jesus, King Jesus. Whatever describes the Father who is King describes the Son who is the anointed King. And anyone who trusts in this trustworthy King Jesus is given amnesty, forgiveness for their rebellion. And they can draw near in confidence now to worship and to live under his life-giving authority and the eternal protection of his mighty power. You, you can draw near if you repent of your rebellion against this King. Will you trust in King Jesus? Do you trust in him? Oh, I pray you do. This psalm describes Jesus the King. He's robed in majesty and he has all authority even now. He spoke to his disciples on the mountain after his resurrection and he told them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the government of the universe. The prophet Isaiah spoke of him when he said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Jesus, you see, established the world and all that we know by speaking it into existence. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians that all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the king with majestic authority, and he is the king with unlimited mighty power. There's no, perhaps no persuasive and powerful image of King Jesus than in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, where the apostle John sees a vision of Jesus and he records, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The humble and lowly King Jesus who walked among us in order to redeem us, will come with majestic authority and mighty power. And His decrees are trustworthy. I am living water. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. Whoever believes in me shall never die. This is your King, church. King Jesus. You know, there isn't a temple anymore to house God's glory and presence. God's plan all along was for his people together to be filled with his presence, made holy by the holy God dwelling in them, individually and together. We are that new house church. We are that place or that temple that King Jesus dwells in by His Spirit. Like Him, we're called to, set apart, to be set apart to live for Him, to glorify Him, to be God's holy people, to be the beauty of His house, the church. Oh, church, Jesus is our King. Jesus is our King. We have elders, we have deacons, we have members, everyone plays a role. There are authority structures, but ultimately the church is a monarchy. We serve King Jesus together. Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in holiness as one of the stones in that new spiritual house of the king called the church? Oh, I pray you are. Set your mind on the majestic authority of God Turn through the pages of Scripture. Think about it daily. Remember that this king has mighty power, power to put down all who are in his op opposition to him, and mighty power to reconcile sinners like us to himself. This king is trustworthy. This king is holy. This king is our king. You may not want to live under the rule of an earthly king, but I promise you, you'll never regret bowing the knee to King Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to us. We praise you, King Jesus, that you took on flesh, that you humbled yourself, that your authority and your power were veiled. Oh, we see it in the pages of Scripture, Lord, when you healed the blind and you calmed the storm and you said that you could call on legions of angels that would be at your command. But now we know that you are high and lifted up. You've been exalted to the right hand of God the Father and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. We bow the knee to you, King Jesus. Oh, Lord, make us holy. Help us see you for who you are, the sovereign king of all the earth. In Christ's name, amen.